You got it now? All right. So just last week, we were at Bethany's grandmother's funeral. And while we were at the funeral, her uncle got up and he said a few words about his mom. And, and he, all he said at one point was the word, yep. And it was like, that was Grammy Snow's yep. That's exactly how she said yep. And so we carry these sorts of things within um, our, our lives. Our moms and dads are really imprinted on us. We act the way we do. We think the way we do. We look the way we do in a lot of ways because of our moms and dads. Yet, what about not just biological fatherhood or motherhood, but what about spiritual fatherhood? What about looking and acting like your spiritual father? The truth is the principle applies from the physical realm into the spiritual realm as well. Who you are and what you do is bound to who your father is on a spiritual level. And so Jesus is continuing here in John chapter 8. He continues to have before him all of these Jewish men who he just informed are slaves to sin, if you remember from verses 31 to 36. In other words, they're not free. These are not free men. These are not, these are not men that uh, live in spiritual freedom. They are living in a spiritual slavery. He tells them that they're enslaved to this sin. And what's interesting is that he kind of moves away or at least adds on some more language, but he, he moves away from the slavery language, at least explicitly, to a parallel concept of sonship. And so we saw last week that true disciples continue in the Word of God. That true disciples have truth and they live in the freedom that it comes from the truth. We looked at how sinners are enslaved to sin, how sinners do not remain in God's house, how sons do remain in God's house. And then in verse 36, how very clearly he says, it's all about the Son setting you free. If the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And then he comes into verses 37 to 47 here in John chapter 8. And the question that they are sure that they have an answer to is something that Jesus confounds them on. You see, these Jewish men, they are absolutely convinced that they are indeed the sons of Abraham. They would have happily sung the song, sons God, or, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. This is, this is something that was completely embedded into their physical and their spiritual DNA. Yet he comes, Jesus confounds them. He comes into these verses in 37 to 47. They are positive that they're the children of Abraham. They are positive that they're the children of God. And Jesus comes into the presence of these men after telling them that they're slaves to sin and in the, in the face of potential death, in the face of potential persecution, he simply says, you are not of Abraham. You are not of God. This is what you are, Jewish men. You are of your father, the devil. When I look at your life, men, you do not resemble Abraham because you don't do his deeds. You do not resemble God because you do not love me. You know what you look like? You know who you act like? You know who you sound like? You sound like the devil. And so I want to look at the flow of this passage this morning by noting three things, those three things. First, they were not the children of Abraham. Second, they were not the children of God. And then third, they are 
the children of the devil. Look at John chapter 8, again, beginning in verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. Continuing on in verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. So it's impossible to miss what Jesus says to these Jews. Two times he says it within those few verses. He says, you seek to kill me. Twice. You seek to kill me. You seek to kill me. And he gives us the reasons they're trying to seek to kill him. In verse 37, he says, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And then number two, you seek to kill me because I've told you the truth. My word has no place in me. You're trying to kill me. I'm telling you the truth and you're trying to kill me. Now, what's Jesus doing here? Well, he's very clearly judging their intentions, isn't he? Jesus is judging the intentions of these men. He can, he can look at these men. He can hear what they say. He can see right through them. He knows exactly how they're feeling. He knows exactly what they're thinking. In their hearts, they want to kill him. And this is something we've seen time and time again over the last few chapters of the book of John. He said earlier in the text that true disciples continue in his word. But here in verse 37, he says that his word has no place in them. So what does that mean? Jesus is, is clearly saying, the word, you would continue in my word if you are a disciple, but you're not. So what does that mean? You're not my disciple. You are disqualified from being my disciple because my word is not continuing in you. They were disqualified from being a son of God. And he's pointing out here that they are disqualified from being even the sons of Abraham. Jesus essentially says, look, I speak the things which I have seen with my father, but you don't do the things that Abraham would have done. You see, when it comes to my relationship with Christ and the relationship that he has with his Father, he would only do the things that the Father had done. We looked at this in John as well. So Jesus is saying, I perfectly emulate all of the things that are in my Father. I'm always in lockstep with my Father. And here you are claiming Abraham as your Father, and you are not in lockstep with your Father Abraham. You are not acting the way that Abraham would act. You are not acting in an Abrahamic fashion. You see, Jesus knows that they are the physical sons of Abraham, and he's, what he's doing in this section is pointing out to them the huge discrepancy between them and Abraham, that they are quite simply not the same. If they were truly the sons of Abraham, would they be trying to kill him? And the implication is absolutely not. They would not be trying to kill him if they were truly the sons of Abraham. He says that their deeds would line up with the deeds of Abraham. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Abraham, Abraham is a huge figure in the Bible. And he lived a couple thousand years before Christ. And if you remember, God called Abraham out of his own country, not on any basis of things that he had done, not in any works, not in any glory that was in and of Abraham. God set his affection and his love, his covenant loyalty upon Abraham and called him out of a land called Ur. And so he enters into covenant with Abraham and Abraham is, is just so significant throughout the context of the Bible. He was a man of faith. He was a man who believed the gospel, the apostle Paul tells us. Abraham was a man who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Abraham would have worshipped and adored Christ if he were there in that moment. If he were to transport Abraham to that moment in John chapter 8, Abraham would have fallen on his knees and worshipped Jesus. But these men look nothing like that. If it were true that Abraham was their father, the apple wouldn't have seemed to have fallen so far from the tree. But there's something very practical that you need to see from this text, and it boils down to the way one author has put it. He said, true sonship is not defined by biology, but by obedience. True sonship is not defined by biology, but by obedience. It's the same thing the apostle argues for in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 9. He is not one who is a Jew outwardly, but he who is a Jew is one inwardly. This is Romans chapter 2. It's not about the outward. It's not about making sure you got that circumcision so that you can guarantee presence of God. That's not what this is about. It's a matter of being a Jew inwardly. It's a matter of having your heart circumcised. This is, this is what Paul is arguing. This is what Jesus is arguing. It's more than physical ancestry that we're talking about. It's having an actual circumcision of your heart. And so in terms of application for us, we are not an expressly Jewish people, but it's wonderful to be born into a Christian family. It's wonderful to be raised in a Christian church. It's wonderful to be uh, getting a Christian education with a Christian worldview, Christian role models, and, and all of the rest. I'm so thankful that my children are growing up in the context of this church particularly because we think so much of so many of you, and I'm, I'm so thankful that you are having the kind of impact in my children's lives. And they come to this place, and they sit with you as their people, and they hear the Word of God, and they are trained in the things of God, and they have people like you who are affirming the truth that we have taught them. And, and this is a wonderful greenhouse, a wonderful context to grow up in. But for you children... For you children, it is wonderful to be raised in a Christian family and to get baptized and have communion from a young age. But what should be understood by all of us is that none of these things guarantee any salvation. Receiving baptism at 8, 9, 10 years old does not guarantee that you are a Christian on the inside. It shows us on the outside. You, you receive the triune baptism baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and there's an external outward demonstration of being a Christian, but that does not guarantee anything of the heart. So for you children, it's so important for you to be thinking about this. Yes, you have this greenhouse to grow up in, and we love you, and we want to care for you, and we want to protect you from the world and to instill in you the principles found in God's Word, but this does not guarantee that you are going to be a Christian. None of you kids are inwardly a Christian just because you biologically belong to your mom and dad. This is so key. All of this is a wonderful gift, but a Jew is one who is a Jew of the heart, not on the outside. Circumcision is of the heart. Children of God are not his children according to the flesh, but of promise, he says in Romans 9. 
And if God does not grant grace to believe, and if the heart is not regenerated, then all of the externally religious things that you do only serve to further condemn you, not save you. So salvation does not come down to biology. It didn't for the men in this passage, and it doesn't for us here today. Salvation comes down to sweetly submitting to the word of Christ, sweetly submitting to the gospel, and continuing in this, as he says, within this text. And so Jesus is clear. These men are not the sons of God. They seek to kill Christ because his word is not in them. They seek to kill Christ because he stated nothing but the truth. But he gives us an inkling who their father is, doesn't he? These men are not the sons of God. They're not the sons of Abraham. They seek to kill Christ. The word is not in them. They seek to do all of this. But in verse 41, what do you find? You are doing the deeds of your father. He's not identified it yet, but he's saying that it's not Abraham, it's somebody else. You're doing the deeds of your father. But notice the second half of verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come of my own initiative, but he who sent me. So you're not the children of Abraham. And you're not the children of God either. And they say to him, we were not born of fornication. Now, why did they bring up fornication? That's a really weird thing to bring up, isn't it? Like you're having this conversation. It's like, well, we weren't born of fornication. In other words... We're not illegitimate. Now, I'm not guaranteeing anything on this. Who knows? But many have surmised that these guys had done some digging on Jesus and gone back to the events surrounding Jesus' conception and his birth. Now, if you're looking at Jesus' conception and his birth and all of that scenario, what would you think as a rational human being? You would have to think that Mary had fornicated in some level or that she had been raped or something like that, that something had happened that meant that Jesus was born of fornication. And so we don't know exactly if that is what they're implying. It certainly could have been. These guys weren't dumb. They, they would have certainly uh, been able to check out family history, get stories and so forth. We don't exactly know. But minimally, what they're doing is they're clearing themselves to Jesus as pure-blooded Jews that don't have any unseemly family history. So Jesus' father might have been suspect, but they could clearly identify their own. And so now they declare God as their father, and Jesus comes right back at them just like he did with Abraham, and he says that if that were true, this is what the reality, reality would be. If God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. So if you were Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. And if you were the children of God, you would love me. You see, these men in this part of the, sec- of the passage, they're relying on having the moral high ground. We're not born of fornication. We have the moral ho- high ground. 
They claim to have the biology necessary to be in a good standing with God, but now they claim to have the morality necessary to be the children of God. And, and this, is, this is the kind of thing that people do, right? Th- this is what we do. We begin lifting ourselves up. We begin trying to list off a bunch of things to prove that we have some kind of moral high ground. We weren't born of immorality. I wasn't born in a pagan context. My family never worshipped any kind of, uh, of idols. That we, we claim to have the moral high ground. This is where we begin to list off all of the things that make you superior to other people. And it's in that superiority where you begin to see yourself as an obvious child of God. Of course I must be a child of God. I wasn't born of fornication. This is the kind of thing that we do. This is the kind of thing that these men were doing. And we begin to think or, or presume that maybe our sonship is based at least a little bit off of our moral superiority. This is a sneaky, sneaky reality for so many Christians. Your sonship or daughtership to God is not based off of how well you picked yourself up by your bootstraps and made yourself a morally superior person. Look at, look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. So what is sonship evidenced by? It's it's not by the fact that you weren't born of fornication. Sonship to God is identified through this love for the Son. People who have God as their Father love Jesus. And so it's a really simple question for us right here. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? A couple of biblical illustrations come to mind regarding love for Christ. And you remember in John 21, and the Apostle Peter has denied Jesus three times. And Jesus has now resurrected. And he says to Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? And then the text basically says Peter was exasperated at being asked these three times. Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep, tend my lambs. But what about you? Genuinely, Do you love Jesus? Do you love Christ? Can you sing what was played in the offertory? My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. Do you love him? That though you have not seen him, you love him that you do love him because he first loved you. Do you love him? You can talk a big game. You can show up to church every Sunday. You can memorize a theological dictionary. You can get every moral down, every virtue down. You can be exemplary in your life. But do you love Jesus? This, friends, is the identifying marker of the one who would be a son or daughter of God in this passage. Somebody 
who has God as their father, loves Jesus. But now we get a bit to the grand finale, as it were, of the passage. So they say, we're Abraham's children. Jesus says, no, you're not, because you would do his deeds. He says, we're God's children. No, you're not, because you would love me. But here is where Jesus tells them who their father is. So, so what Jesus has done, if you've ever seen the show, Jesus has conducted a spiritual paternity test, and it has concluded that Abraham is not the father. God is not the father. Satan is the father. Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So who is their father? Their father is the devil. How do you know that he's the father? Because they want to do what their father does. They want to lie about Christ and they want to murder Christ. So the same tricks that Satan played in the Garden of Eden are the same tricks that they want to play on Jesus right now. Jesus has seen all of this before. He has not fooled on any level. The first thing that he says is that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Now, how was Satan a murderer from the beginning? Not just Genesis chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, he specifically says that, that Satan has this connection to Cain who killed his brother Abel. But it was even before that. Because you see, the serpent, Satan, the devil, he comes into the Garden of Eden. And he tempts them, and he lies to them, and he brings death as a result of all of this. So the first thing he says is that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And we see this in Adam's plunge into sin. You need to remember that there was no human death until sin came into the world. There was no animal death until sin came into the world. So there, were, there was no such thing as death until sin came into the world. And so Adam's fall brought sin into the world, and thus it brought death into the world. And so what is one of the things that Satan loves? He loves death because it's sin that produced death. And so the connection here cannot be missed. These men that Jesus is talking to, they are being like their father Satan because they intend to lie about Christ and they intend to murder Christ and they're going to succeed at that six months from this point in time. But how did Satan lie? Do you remember how he lied? You will not surely die. If we eat of that tree, we're going to die. You will not surely die. Oh, that Adam would have screamed, Liar! You're wrong! God said we would die. We're not going to eat the fruit. But he didn't do it. And his wife ate. She was deceived. She handed it to him. And he ate. 
But notice how closely their natures are tied to Satan. Notice how Jesus points out the deep roots within their own hearts, beginning in verse 44 again. You want to do the desires of your father. This is what the natural man wants to do. The natural man, apart from Christ, he wants to do the things that his father Satan does. He wants to follow after his father's deeds. He wants to follow after Satan's nature and be a liar and be a killer. Their will is absolutely in bondage to the fact that their nature is tied to the nature of Satan. We talk about free will all of the time as though people are somehow neutral, but people are not neutral in their nature. They are deceived. They have the Satan as their father. And so the desires of unbelievers are free to do the will of their father Satan. That's where their freedom leads them. To do the will of Satan. It's not God. Their nature is not aligned with the nature of God. They pursue after their own father. They choose of their own volition to do wicked things because their nature is bound to Satan. You notice Jesus says Satan does not stand in the truth. There is no truth in him. You compare that with last week and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If your father is Satan, you will follow in his footsteps and you will not stand in the truth. People who follow Satan as their father, who have their nature aligned with Satan, they do not walk in the truth. They don't. By the way, friends, this is why it is satanic to not consider the truth of God's Word to be all that important. Satan relativizes and lies about the truth and distorts the truth. That's like what he does. That's his job. You will not surely die. Factor that into all of the truth that comes down through the rest of the pages of the Bible. But Christians must be about the truth no matter what level you think that the truth is on. This is why theological error should never be handled with kids' gloves. This is why the elders of this church take pains to be sure that truth is what is leading this true church. And so if you find or think that we are not leading the church in the truth, you should come to us and let us know and talk about it and hash it out. And we might get to the end where there is disagreement and we can't come to a certain conclusion on it at the moment. But we should never, ever relativize any kind of truth because God's word is truth. So we even use language and we think about things being like, well, this is like a primary level of importance. This is a secondary level of importance. And this is a third level. And we, we kind of play that game. And that's fine. We can do that. But that does not mean that the thing on the second level is not important. It's wicked important. The third level, it's extremely important to, to have these things zeroed in on, to be thinking through all of these things. So sure, be, be thinking about things in levels like that, but please do not relativize the level of importance on those things. It is extremely important. We must be a church that is radically committed to the truth of the Bible at all costs. Like the truth is always a hill to die on. You need to understand 
that it does not matter to me how big this church gets. That doesn't, that's not what's going to keep me awake at night. But you know something that will keep me awake at night and that should keep you awake at night? Is how committed this church is to the truth. That's what should keep us awake at night. Doesn't matter. It's not, I am not worried about size. I'm worried about truth. I'm worried about a congregation that is radically white knuckle gripping the truth. That's what I care about. And incidentally, the more we press and care about that, the larger the church has grown. Thank God. When you have a church that is committed to the unadulterated truth of God, you have a church that is in line with God the Father and completely opposed to the devil. So hold the truth. Hold on to the truth. Embrace the truth. This is where our church has to make its stand on all matters. Yes, on matters like the Trinity and and Jesus being God and the inspiration and infallibility of the Scripture. Absolutely. But yes, holding the truth on matters in our own culture regarding homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion and all of these issues that the Bible speaks so radically clear on. We cannot budge. We cannot move. These things are radically important. God's Word. This is why we, think of it, we should be thinking in terms of theological maximalism and not theological minimalism. Let's explain that. Theological maximalism, kind of like what maybe you've seen in the email, all of Christ for all of life. We want to apply God's Word. We want to apply Christ to every situation, to every thought pattern, to everything that you're thinking about and thinking through. It's all of Christ for all of life. It doesn't matter if it's your work ethic during the week or a theological thing like the Trinity. All of Christ for all of life. We don't want to have a context where it's just theologically minimalist, where we're going to hold to the absolute bare minimum but that we're theological maximalists. We're we're constantly pressing theology. We're constantly pressing the Bible. And we're pressing it into every single aspect of our lives. This is what we want. This is what we want to push forward to. When you again have the church that is committed to the truth of God, you must press it into every every part of life. You want a church that is in line with God the Father. You don't want a church in line with Satan to become a synagogue. Satan. And so these men are of their father, the devil. Verses 45 to 46, they do not believe Christ. But notice the last verse of our text in verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. So this is the simple reality. The reality is that the people who are of God hear the words of God, and the people who are not of God do not hear the words of God. This is, this is actually one of the cool things about having a little bit of mileage as a pastor, because there are some people within this church that I got to talk to before they became a Christian, and then now I can talk to them now that they've become a Christian and have become part of our church. And I can remember conversations with some of you before you became a Christian, and I can compare to them to, to now that you are one. 
And before you became a Christian, it was very obvious that you were not of God. It was very obvious in conversation that you could not hear the words of God. But now, having conversations with you, I can see that the truth has set you free. And that the words of God do register with you. And that it's not like deer in the headlights anymore. It means something to you. The Son has set you free. And it has become apparent that God is your Father and you want the Word of God, the truth. But again, for you children here, and if you're here and you don't know Jesus, who is your Father? Who is your spiritual Father? Are you depending on some sort of biological mom and dad sort of relationship, connection? Mom and dad were Christians. I was homeschooled or I went to a Christian school or whatever. I was baptized and I communed at a young age. Are you depending in some sort of morality? You never knew, or you, you were never immoral before marriage, or you've never been drunk, or you've always walked the straight and narrow. Do you do the deeds that Abraham would have done had he been in the presence of Christ on this day? Do you love Jesus? When you hear the truth of Christ, do you believe? If not, then you are not of God. You are of your father, the devil. Let's pray. Lord, to consider the words of Christ and how frank he was with these men is, is fairly startling. And unless maybe in extreme anger, we would never say these kinds of words to somebody. That they're of the devil. That they're of their father, the devil. Well, Lord, you do this. And it's clear that these men are of their father, the devil. And the only way to be unlocked from that is for the Son to set them free. And Lord, we pray. What's done is done in that scenario. But here we are in the present, and I pray that there are, if there are any who do not know you, that are enslaved to their sin and are following after the nature of their father, the devil. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would unshackle them and help them to see the truth and help them to continue in it. Lord, I'm thankful that we can look even to testimonies in our own congregation and even in our own lives to consider who we were before we were set free to follow you. How wonderful it is to be able to talk to one another and hear each other's stories and to have relationships where we can even think about how there didn't seem to be much clarity on the gospel and the things of Christ. But now there are. Lord, these are wonderful testimonies. And Lord, we give you all of the glory for the salvation that you have brought about in the lives of the people of this church. Lord, I pray that we would do the deeds of Abraham. Lord, I pray that we would love Christ. And it's his, in his name we pray this. Amen.